0: Hear now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the ninth chapter, just verses 10 and 11. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. I mean the Lord illuminate us as to the meaning of this passage. May it have bearing on our hearts as we go into this year. Let's ask him for that to happen. Father, as we look at this great word, as we prepare ourselves for one of the great miracles that Jesus Worked as uh, 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 that. This is sort of an introduction to. I just pray that we will pause a little bit, not speed over these verses, but try to visualize them and, and try to put ourselves there and to see and learn of Jesus more fully than sometimes we do, and then to ask ourselves a question: if if we are seeing these events as they actually happened, or Are we seeing them through our own eyes and and, and more of a modern context? Lord, we will indeed give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, many of you know that before I was a pastor, uh, actually after I got saved, I, I spent quite a few years with probably one of the best gigs that anyone can have. I mean, I got to travel the world with a camera. Uh, and to see all kinds of ma- amazing things, uh, to, um, to look at the kingdom from many different perspectives. I was making videos for missionaries, and what I would do is go and stay with them for a while, make a video, and just give it to them so that they could then give that video to their supporters. And sometimes I would make videos of the missions outreach of the church we were attending at that time. Uh, and as a matter of course, you can imagine I spent some time in some of the poorer places of the world. Actually, some of the most unspeakable slums that you could imagine. People living in the most amazing squalor that you, 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 you just couldn't uh, uh, visualize it. But then I would go and I would take these videos and I would come back and there was a phenomenon that occurred over and over and over again. I would look at the video and something had happened. It wasn't the way I remembered it. It was as if... It had been sanitized. It was cleaner than it was. The people were happier than I remembered them being. The suffering didn't seem to be as intense as it was. And certainly the smells that always accompany that were not there. And so rather than having a rendition of the way it actually was, I had a sanitized version of what it was. The only way really to get get to see it the way it is, is to actually go and to be there. Now, as we turn our attention to our text this morning, there are two things I want to bring out. And if I'm successful, I'll be able to, to get you there to where you can be in the midst of this. The first thing is that Jesus did not live or work or minister in a sanitized world. He, he he was in an unsanitized world. He is right in the middle of the most difficult situations, the kind of situations that occur when there's no medical science. There, there there's no fixing problems that people had. So he dealt with real pain and real suffering and real disease. Real demonic activity, real poverty, real hunger, real oppression, and real death. I mean, this is the world that Jesus actually lived in. And when we read the stories, the second point that I want to make is, if you're honest with yourself, I think you probably sanitize it in your mind. You either zip over it real quickly because it's leading on to something else or or you, you, you see it in the context that we live in, which is very sanitized compared to the place that Jesus was and the kind of suffering that he was confronting with. And of course, there is no suffering greater that any human being can possibly imagine than the suffering that Jesus came to save us from, which is the suffering for an eternity in hell. So... Um, if if you can this morning, I, I want to see if we can desanitize. I mean, we have to desanitize because we've got we've got this vision in our minds. If you can desanitize this passage for just a bit and place yourself there in the midst of horrific suffering, and then we're going to get a better idea of the ministry that Jesus had, and I think the ministry that He calls us to. Now this passage is an introduction if you will to the the famous one of the most famous of all the miracles that Jesus worked and that's the feeding of the 5000. Probably more like ten, twelve, fifteen thousand when women and children were added to it, and so usually you don't see these two verses, you know, brought out in a sermon. If you read the commentaries, usually there's a line or two, or maybe you get a paragraph. But I'm inspired this morning by Charles Spurgeon, who not only preached a sermon on these passages, but preached two full-length sermons on this because he found a, a, a real uh, a, a important statement in what Jesus was feeling at the time when he went to this other side and the fact that he welcomed those Who were suffering, and 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 I want to see if I can do it. Now, his his focus was totally different than mine. He was talking evangelism, talking to the unsaved. I really want to talk to the saved. I, I really want to talk to this church and what our outreach is going to be in the year that comes. Now, just because this is a introduction to. The miracle that we'll get into next week does not mean that it is disconnected from the rest of what Luke teaches because everything in Luke is really intricately woven together. So some of the things that I want to keep in mind as we go into this passage are, are these. One, remembering the cameo healings that we've talked about. And when I say a cameo healing, I mean a healing that we actually know the details of. Like that demoniac on the other side that Jesus cast the demons out of. Like the woman with a flow of blood that touched Jesus from behind and her flow was stopped. Like the raising of Jairus's daughter from the dead. Now, each one of those, we have a lot of details. But when we see a blanket statement like this and Jesus, you know, was healing and, and all who came to him were cured, we, we tend to just zip over it as, as if it didn't take all day long or as if Jesus didn't do this all day long, day after day, day in and day out. And I think if we're going to really see the kind of ministry that he has, we need to keep that in mind. Second thing that I want us to keep in mind, and I know that we just can't get away from the parable of the sower, but we're going to be talking about apostling this morning. We're going to be talking about outreach and missions. And we're going to be talking about that very same parable of the sower who goes out into the field to sow the gospel, out into the world to sow the gospel, because that's exactly what Jesus sent his apostles to do. And it is exactly what Jesus is going to be continuing to do himself. So that parable comes into it. And there's one other thing that I want you to keep in mind. And that is that little interlude that we saw last week about Herod Antipas. And the fact that it's sandwiched in between the culmination of the trip that the twelve apostles took, which we will see this morning, and the beginning of that trip that actually occurred back in the uh, sixth verse actually and, and if you remember, they departed and went through the village preaching the gospel and healing everywhere well that started the the the, the trip of these twelve apostles, and then all of a sudden we diverted our attention to talk about Herod Antipas. And now we're going to finish the story about the 12 apostles going out. So why is that little interlude of Herod Antipas sandwiched in between? Why didn't he complete the story of the 12 and then tell us about Herod Antipas? Well, one of the reasons is obviously he's talking about the perils of discipleship. But there's another reason that I think, and it has to do with this passage. And I'm going to hopefully bring that out later on towards the end of the, of the message because I truly believe that there's a comparison here and that Herod Antipas in his ivory tower is someone that we are supposed to see in sharp distinction from Jesus down in the trenches. So we'll see that when we get to that. So with that said, let's jump into our text. We don't have an awful lot of it. But I think that there are some important aspects of it. So look in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. Now, of course, as I said, that's the culmination or the finish of that trip where he sent them out, gave them power and authority over the demons and to to heal. And so when they came back, I would imagine this was a very merry gathering. I, I, you know, there's nothing more exciting to an evangelist than to see God work through them, to see God change lives. And I can only imagine what it must have felt like for these men being given the power Power and authority now over demons and healing and going out and actually seeing God work through them in that way. Now I know that they ran into problems. I know that they uh, Jesus said, you know I want you to shake the dust off your feet when they reject you so I'm sure there was a lot of rejection but I don't think that's probably the subject that they're talking about. They're exciting excited because they've seen the work of the Holy face to face right up close. And there's nothing more exciting than that. Now, there's two words in that statement that I want to bring out and just, you know, comment on just a wee bit because we do have a model that the church needs to follow. The first is that is that word apostle. And I'm not going to go into it because I know a couple of weeks ago I did that word apostle simply means to send. It's a sent one and it is not unique to Christianity, but the way that it is being used in Christianity is entirely unique. And that is the ones that Christ sent into the world, powered with authority to cast out demons and heal. Now, I realize that there are other people in scripture that were, are referred to as apostles. I realize that there are people today who claim to be apostles. I'm not here, I don't want to even address that today. What I want to do is focus on these twelve men, minus Judas, plus Matthias and Paul. Thirteen men that God gave special power and authority to, to accomplish something specific. They were unique in all of, of redemptive history. And this power died with them at the end of the apostolic age. In fact, towards the end of their lives, it had even started to wane. And what, what, what we're seeing here is a model of the, how the church is supposed to deal with its ministry. A model that we call apostling. And I know that we've talked about apostling for many, many years, and most of you know what it is, but just so no one misunderstands me when I say that word, it's a made-up word. You're not going to find it in the dictionary. When I refer to us as apostlers, that's also a made-up word. Now, I am referring to the Greek word apostello, which is the word to send, but when Jesus gave his disciples the Great Commission, we're not the apostles, but we are under the same command to go forward and to, to, uh, disciple the world and to bring them into the kingdom and to share the good news of the gospel with people and show them the, 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 the mercy and the compassion of Christ. That one two punch of apostling is, is what we see all through scripture. The first apostle with a capital A was Jesus, sent by the Father to this world to bring the light of heaven, to proclaim the good news of the gospel of God's gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, and at the same time to authenticate that gospel, that message... By working mighty deeds. The one led to the other. The proclamation of the kingdom being the most important. Well, he has just given that power to his apostles and sent them out. Once again... They are unique, but we have the same calling. So when I talk about apostling this morning, I'm talking about the central function of the church. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what Jesus commanded us to do as far as going forward and to share the good news of the kingdom that is upon us. So that's the meaning of apostling. It doesn't mean I'm not claiming that we're apostles because they they died out long ago. I'm saying that we have the same calling as the apostles had to go and to show the compassion of Christ through mercy ministries to authenticate the message that we want people to hear. Now, the other word that is in this sentence that I want you to see is sort of a benign word. They, they came back, they clustered around Jesus, the one who had sent them, and they told him Everything that had happened, they 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 they, they gave him a a play by play of recounting of what they had done. Now the word that Luke uses here, there's only one other place in his gospel that he uses the word. So told is a little bit benign; it really doesn't capture it. The only other time Luke uses this word is when Jesus commands the demoniac the, of, of Gerasene just after he heals him. And he commands him, he says, I'm not going to take you with me. I want you to go out to all the countryside and report to them what, what God has done for you. To share your testimony, to bear witness of the glory of God." So there's a model here. They're sent out as apostles, apostello, to go apostling, And when they have come back, they gather around the one who has sent them and report back the glory of what God has done. This is a model that is refined in the book of Acts because when Paul and Barnabas took their first missionary voyage, they went out and they were amazed to see the work of God amongst the Gentiles. And then they came back to Antioch, the church that had sent them, then to Jerusalem, the church that sent them, and reported back the good news of what God was doing on the mission field. There, different word, but the same kind of an idea, but just more refined. The word is anageo, a word that many of you are familiar with. It means to report back the good news. And it's, in that sense, it's the echo of evangelism. We go forward to share the good news of Christ, euangelizo in the Greek, and then we come back after we've done that, anageo, to report back the good news of what has happened on the mission field. Now, the reason many of you are familiar with that. Is because every mission trip we have ever taken, where, whether it's to Arizona or Kentucky or, or Haiti or, or, or wherever it is, Peru, we come back and we have a report back session, and that's very biblical. And I tell you at the time, I give you the same story about Anagaio and why we do what we do. But this is what we're seeing here. It's not something that we made up. It is something that is part of the apostling process to report back to the church or the person in this case who sent you and to share the good news about what went on. So that's exactly what the apostles did. So a wonderful model for us as a church in our outreach and our apostling to continue to uh, deal with. Well, we go on and finish that verse. And he them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now the apostles are learning a lot um, very quickly now under the tutelage of Jesus. But one of the things that I'm sure they have just learned is that ministry is exhausting. It it, it just takes. The, the very, uh, uh, life's energy almost, it seems, out of you. Anyone who has stood in the pulpit and preached knows that when you're done, there is a very unnatural exhaustion that, that comes in. There's, you're just tired. It's just like you're just worn out. That, that, the, that, the, that your energy is all gone. Well, we saw that in Jesus, didn't we? We saw that when he got into the boat to go to the other side, that even in the midst of a life-threatening storm, he went into the back of the boat and fell asleep because he was so exhausted from his ministry. And you also saw in the healing of the woman with the flow of blood that even though he didn't see her in his humanity, he felt some of the, some of the power leave him or go out of him. So that means every single time that Jesus healed, every time there was any kind of ministry or even teaching and preaching the word, they, he's becoming more and more exhausted. Now the apostles know exactly what he means. So Jesus says to his apostles, apostles, you need a rest. I'm going to take you across and we're going to find a desolate place. And I'm going to give you a little bit of rest. Now Luke's a little bit uh, scant on the details. But Mark puts it this way. Jesus talking to his apostles at the same time. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So they're exhausted But I also think that Jesus would be exhausted too. I mean, what do you think Jesus did when he sent these guys off into Galilee and off they went? I mean, at least for a couple of weeks, if not a month or two. You know, they're out because it says they went everywhere in Galilee and were healing everywhere. So what do you think Jesus did when he waved them goodbye and said, Hey, guys, I'm going to catch up on some reading and some sleep. I'll see you when you get back. You know, I'm going to take a little bit of a rest. Jesus didn't do that. He never operated that way. So I would see that he continues with his ministry. And so he is just as exhausted as they are. And plus, something has happened in the interim here. Again, Luke keeps our attention on Christ. He doesn't remove it and get us off on John the Baptist. But Jesus has learned that John the Baptist is dead, that he's been beheaded. And he just wanted to get away. Whenever Jesus was troubled, he would get away and get up to a mountaintop and spend some time with his father. So we we know that Jesus is just as exhausted as his disciples. This is going to be important later on. But he takes them to a a village, a town called Bethsaida. Bethsaida is just on the eastern side of the lake, just south of where the Jordan River empties into the Sea of Galilee. It's a town that is aptly named because it means house of fish or house of fishers. And it was a, um, a a fishing village, and um, probably that's not the destination. That might be just where they parked the boat, because or docked the boat, I guess I should say. Because the gospels tell us that Jesus took them to a desolate place. And actually, that's the whole kind of idea behind the feeding of the 5,000. There was no place near them they could could go and uh, and get a meal. So we know that they don't stay in Bethsaida. And in fact, uh, Josephus, the historian, tells us that Bethsaida, um, was built up into kind of a city by Philip. So it's probably a pretty good metropolitan area. So they, they, they get to Bethsaida, and off they go to some desolate place. Now, Bethsaida has some distinctions. It's significant for several reasons in Scripture. One, fully, what, a fourth, if not a third, of the apostles' came from Bethsaida. That's their hometown. John tells us this. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Peter, Andrew, and Philip all came from Bethsaida. Apparently, like Jesus moved from Nazareth, they moved over to Capernaum. And many people think that Nathaniel also came from Bethsaida. So there are some pretty important people as far as the Christian faith are concerned came from that little town. But there's another distinction that will. Uh, that I don't know how important it is. Because uh, I don't know if it's actually the reason that people follow Jesus. We'll get to that in a moment. But Bethsaida even though it was only three miles from Capernaum. It was just over the border of the outer side of Herod Antipas's tetrarchy. And then you were into the tetrarchy of Philip, his half-brother. And as we're going to see, many people think that that has a uh, a significance in what happens next. But we'll get to that in a moment. I think the real distinction that we want to keep in our minds about Bethsaida is that Bethsaida, like Capernaum, was a city of unbelievers. They saw amazing things, but basically... They were a city of unbelievers. Matthew puts it this way. Woe to you, Korazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. That is harsh language about a city. And so, obviously, the people who were following Jesus and actually clamoring to be healed were from Capernaum and Bethsaida, which means that they're ultimately unbelievers, that Jesus is showing this degree of compassion to. It really says an awful lot about the ministry of Christ. So, that's the place that they go. Now, something amazing happens between the time they get in the boat to go there and the time that they make landfall. Look at the 11th verse. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them. Now, once again, Luke's a little bit sketchy on, not sketchy, but scant on his um, details. Mark gives us a little bit more um, when he says, now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns And got there ahead of them. So basically what happens is that the people in Capernaum see Jesus get into the boat. Now... For some reason, there seems to be almost a panic, almost an urgency because they light out across the top edge of the Sea of Galilee. They make that on foot about three miles and they jump across the Jordan and come down. Everywhere they go, they pick up more people and finally they get to Bethsaida or wherever it was that Jesus landed. And there they are waiting for him when he came to shore. Now, as I said, these are, for the most part, people who are, are, are sort of unbelieving in Jesus at, at, at the end of it. But why do you think there was such a fervor? Why do you think that they were so anxious to follow Jesus? Well, there's several different ideas. One of them has to do with that border of Philip Antipas' um, um, tetrarchy. Because some people thought that Jesus, hearing that John the Baptist had been killed and that now Herod was interested in him, got afraid and left Capernaum for good to move his headquarters to Bethsaida. And, and, and this really upset the people because they, they wanted to follow him. So they followed him to see if this is what was going to happen. Now, that could be true. I don't think that people knew Jesus very well that thinks that because Jesus didn't run from anybody, you know. Uh, but granted, it's on the other side of the borderline, and Philip and Antipas were not best buddies because actually that whole hubbub between... Herod Antipas and Herodias, his wife, well, he seduced Herodias from his half-brother Philip. And so, therefore, they really didn't get along. So, it could easily be that if Jesus got into Philip's tetrarchy, he'd be safe from Antipas. But I don't think that's it. And and, and I don't agree with those who think that they just wanted to sit at Jesus' feet all the more because of the great teaching. Now, I do not doubt that the teaching is great. And I don't doubt that people marveled at it... Because in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear at the very end of it that he spoke with authority, not like their scribes. But I don't think that's the reason that they're chasing him down. I think John has it when he tells us in his gospel, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Uh, they, they wanted more miracles. They, they, they were excited to see this, this first place, and, and, and they were enthralled with it, and their entertainment is leaving and going to, to Bethsaida. So I really think that that has an awful lot to do with it. But anyway, I want you to see if you can visualize this, okay? Because here's the situation. Jesus and his disciples, we know the disciples just got back from this journey. They're exhausted because of the ministry. We know Jesus is also probably exhausted. He knows that his disciples need a rest and we know that he needs a rest. He gets into a boat to go to the other side and when they get there... There's the whole crowd that they just left behind hoping to escape. Here they all are on the the side of the lake waiting for him to get there. Knowing that quite a few of them are the same unbelieving miracle chasers that they left in Bethsaida. So my question to you is what would you do? How would you respond if this happened? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been bone tired, absolutely, totally, completely wasted, and all you want to do is get home and fall in your easy chair or go or get in bed, and you're just about to fall asleep, and all of a sudden the phone rings, you know, and someone has a desperate need. You've got to get back up. You've got to put your clothes on. You've got to get back out and start it all over again, Okay. Well, that's kind of the situation that we have here. The people are already there when Jesus gets there. Now, you may ask yourself, well, how did that happen? How does Jesus get in a boat, goes straight across the lake, and these guys have to go all the way around? How do they get there before you, before him? Any sailors in the house? Because if you're a sailor, it is not really a hard question at all because the wind is not always with you. I mean, if the wind's right behind you, yeah, boom, you're right across that lake in a straight line. But the chances of that are very slim. And if the wind is in front of you, then you've got to zigzag, call it tacking, beating against the wind. And it takes forever to get to your destination or they might have had to row because there was no wind at all. So it's, it's an easy explanation of why these people are there before them. But here's the amazing thing. And here's what I want you to see. Because this is where Jesus begins to show us the kind of person that he actually is. He welcomed them. When he shows up and these same people that he just left and, 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 and he's seeing them there, he Welcome them. Now, now, not me. I'm sorry. You know, to my shame, I would say that's not at all what I'm going to do. I'm not going to welcome these guys. In fact, I am going to say, I'm on vacation. Sorry. I'm going up to that mountain, and I don't want to see one single one of you guys follow me. Take a number. Get in line. I'll be back in a couple of days. But I'm taking a rest, right? Now, who, who would not do that? Because that's the kind of people we are. But Jesus, it doesn't even say that he reluctantly... Uh, uh began to minister to them the word that he, that is used here he welcomed them it means to receive them but not just to receive them but to receive them with favor to receive them with gladness to have the desire to receive them to actually have a zeal and 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 to be excited it says oh boy i get to receive these people that i'm trying to escape now what does that tell you folks Let me give you a principle, and this is a principle that especially applies to those of you in Christian service, those of you who feel like you're just being sucked dry, those of you who feel that every single day is a challenge and a hurdle. And every single day you have something to overcome and there's uh, there's withdrawals, one after the other, after the other, and you just desperately need a deposit. Instead of getting the deposit, another withdrawal, another need. Let me give you a principle. Jesus' tiredness, his fatigue, his exhaustion, and the tiredness and fatigue, and exhaustion of his apostles is secondary to his zeal to do the work of the kingdom. Let me repeat that. Jesus' tiredness, his physical exhaustion, his fatigue, and that of those who follow him in ministry in this kingdom. That fatigue and that, 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 that total exhaustion is entirely secondary To the zeal to do the work of God in this kingdom. Jesus would say, this is the reason that I am here. When I leave this world, I can rest. There is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There is a time that we will lie down and we will rest and we will be regenerated and refilled. And not that we don't need it here. But the the whole purpose and the whole uh, uh, makeup of the kingdom of God is a kingdom that literally saps the life out of us. But yet, the zeal for the kingdom, the zeal for his father's house, the zeal for what we have been called to do is greater than our own exhaustion, our own needs. And that becomes entirely secondary if we are going to follow in the feet of Jesus or the footsteps of Jesus. Because that is the model that he shows us time and time again. He stays up all night apostling. And that's what we see next. We see what it actually means. Again to apostle. Now notice what it says. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And cured those. Who had need of healing. Where it is. Over and over again. We see it in the gospels. That place the primary place goes to the preaching and teaching of the word that's the very first thing that takes precedence over everything else in fact the healing ministry is so that the people will accept the message to authenticate the messenger and the message that he brings that's what it's all about but the the the, the apostling is exactly those two things to proclaim the, the 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 message of the kingdom of god and to heal those who are sick. I, I, I asked this question a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the apostles that went out. And, and, and the question is, well, what actually are they teaching and preaching? And, and, and I kind of want to revisit that because there is this belief, and especially as we start talking about our own apostling outreach, there's a belief that the gospel really is sort of the technical um, uh, ability or the way that we are saved. It's it's the, the technical mechanics of soteriology, if you want to look at it that way. But that's not what Jesus preached because he's not, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't been resurrected yet. He hasn't ascended to heaven and been coronated yet. So what actually is Jesus preaching? What he is teaching these people under the thumb of Phariseeism and their legalism Is that God loves them and therefore because he loves them he knows that they're incapable of saving themselves. So he has sent his son as the redeemer, as the Messiah, as the Christ. The kingdom of heaven is upon you. So therefore repent. Repent and believe in the gospel and i know that he told many parables of the kingdom the the parable of the of, of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great worth and the mustard seed probably told stories like the the prodigal son and illustrations galore that's the way he taught But the basics of what he taught is that God loves you and has sent his son. We could wrap it up in John 3, 16 through 18. I think I quoted it last week. I'm not going to quote it again this week. But it is exactly what the total sum total of what Jesus came to teach. And that is that God loves you. And he loves this world. And he sent his son so that you could be saved. And whoever believes in my son will be saved. But don't leave this part out. Because this is just as much a part of the gospel as is the love of God. If you reject the son, if you reject him, if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are condemned already. And Jesus taught this from the very beginning. I am here. I am the son of God. I am the messiah. And if you trust and believe in me, then you'll be saved. If you reject me as so many have done, then you will not be saved. In fact, Horrible, horrific judgment awaits you. And so therefore, that's what I believe he was teaching and preaching as far as the proclamation of the kingdom. But then notice what Luke says there at the end. And cured those who had need of healing. Now, when I think of this, when when I think of what that means, it stands out to me. Two things basically stand out to me as part of of Jesus' uh, uh, healing ministry. First of all, it was unsanitized. It was real suffering. It was real need. It was people who were truly uh, um, sick or infirm or deformed or disabled in some way. These were people with serious problems. And when when we look at it in our minds, I think we tend to de- to, to sanitize it a little bit. Where the people just kind of line up, you know, like Benny Hinn goes boop, boop, boop in a line. And up, down, everybody gets saved. That's not the way it was, okay? It it, it was a time of Intense, uh intense uh, suffering that the people were going through. And secondly, Jesus was at it all day. I mean, when we see this, when we read it in one little bitty tiny phrase, we tend to compress it in our minds. And we don't recognize that Jesus would do this from sun up until sundown and sometimes deep into the night. And he did it day after day after day after day, showing compassion to the people because he looked at them and they were like sheep without a shepherd recognize that Jesus lived in the real world. He lived in the, the world of suffering. And that suffering was alleviated by what he, um, what he did. And he didn't turn people away. Subject for another day as to when Jesus decided to heal and when he didn't decide to heal, like the people in Gerasene or the people in Nazareth. But when people came to him with real needs and he was healing them, nothing was too hard for him to heal and he didn't turn anyone away. So let me ask you something, and and if you would, just for a moment, be honest with yourself. When you read that passage, how many have stopped and thought about, or other passages like it, real short, real quick, Jesus healed everybody, he was up all night, he healed everybody that needed healing. What goes through your mind? How do you visualize that, or do you visualize it? Do you slow down, do you stop, and you take a look, and you consider the degree of human suffering that Jesus was confronted with in his ministry and the amount of time and love and compassion that he spent teaching those people or dealing with those people. I have seen just a glimpse of the kind of suffering that, 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 that he uh, was up against. And, and by the way, one of the things that we need to recognize... In our sanitized world where people get sick and we dial 911 and a a pristine ambulance comes and takes them away with, with trained medical people. And they go to a pristine hospital where it's totally sanitized and people walk around in white coats. That's not the way it is just an hour or so off the coast. Because there are people who are still suffering to the same degree that people did in Jesus' day. I have... Remember some of the events that, that I've seen and been part of. Years ago, Kay and I went to Peru um, as part of Judy Nunez's uh, Johnny Erickson Tata's wheelchair ministry. And we saw some of the most heart wrenching situation: a young girl out of the countryside. Who had no use of her legs and spent her entire life, she was a teenager, but she had spent her entire life dragging herself around on her stomach because her hands worked, no mobility whatsoever. Her hands were terribly scarred and calloused. And when we saw her, they were open sores that were all infected. Same thing with her knees. A lifetime of suffering for that girl. I remember another girl who came there who was horribly disabled, both mentally and physically. And she had come from the countryside, and there they felt in the in the village that she was possessed by a demon. So they had put her in a cage outside their house. And that's where she had lived, no better than an animal with absolutely no care whatsoever. I remember a young man that I ran into in a little village in Haiti, out in the cane fields, a place called Gard, um. I believe is the name of it. I probably mispronounced that name. But nonetheless, this man had a tumor in his jar very similar to the tumor that my daughter has in her leg. And, and it was incurable and there was nothing that could be done even if he had the means to it. And it was about the size of an egg at the time that I saw it. And it was, had his teeth going all different directions. It was growing out of his mouth. He couldn't close his mouth. It would continue growing until it simply blocked his, his, um, windpipe and he died a miserable, suffering death. I'll never forget one of our medical clinics that's another little village in Haiti called La Belmer. And we were in a church and we had some nurses with us. uh, And a woman came in first thing in the morning. And she had her little son with her with hydrocephalus, the, the water on the brain. And she begged us, is there anything that you can do? But of course, that was way beyond our capability. But that woman sat in the back of that church. From that time early morning until we finally closed up about 12 hours later with that poor little boy draped draped, draped across her lap. Crying and wailing and sobbing and begging us at the top of her lungs. Is there no one that can help my son? Is there no one who can save him? I've seen some of the suffering that exists out there. I was in Africa at the height of the AIDS crisis. I went through village after village where virtually every adult in the village was dead. No one else in that village except the very old and the very young. I was in Albania shortly after the Bosnian Wars, after the collapse of of communism and i saw people living in the dead of winter in bombed out buildings with no clothes no food no uh uh heat no covering no wood to build a fire with no hope no future no nothing because the world around them had crumbled i was in haiti shortly after the devastating earthquake of 2010 and i saw death and deprivation and decimation of that City of Port-au-Prince in an unparalleled, unprecedented stage. So I've seen just a little bit. Of what Jesus spent his life doing. I saw what he... Can, I can only imagine what it is like to see people eaten up with leprosy. To where it looks like it's actually eating the skin right off of your fingers down to your bone. I, I when, when people were blind or lame in those days, there was no one to take care of them. There was no social uh, uh, systems to provide for them. They sat on the side of the road and begged every day of their life for a penny... So that they could simply have something to eat. Or a man who was so horribly disabled. He couldn't even roll over into the waters of Bethesda. When he thought that an angel had stirred it. Now Jesus spent his life. Ministering to those with deep. And unsanitized needs. And I wonder dear brothers and sisters if. We see it the same way. If you can visualize that, then I want you to visualize Jesus right in the middle of it because that's your Lord. That's how he spent his time. Now, if you can visualize that, then step away where just one other thing because Jesus did not just come to heal the physical suffering of people. He came to also to to show the good news of the kingdom of God but to warn us that this world is not all there is and there is an accounting ...that will occur and that if you think the suffering that you see around you is anything, you have no idea of the degree of suffering that happens in an eternity in hell... And Jesus used different metaphors to talk about it. He talked about the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He talked about the, um, the the valley of Gehenna where the worm doesn't die and the flame doesn't go out. He talked about a rich man just begging Abraham to have Lazarus put his finger in a little bit of water because he was in torment. Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else did. And the, the reason is because he doesn't want you to go there. The amount and the degree of human suffering that Jesus is trying in, in his ministry and going to the cross and begging people to believe in him is to alleviate the worst human suffering that can possibly happen. So I wonder sometimes, where do we fit in? Is that the world we live in? I told you I was going to bring Herod Antipas back up. And the reason I want to is because I think there's a comparison here. I don't think Luke meant it to be. I just, it's theirs and that's what I see. Because you see, Herod Antipas lived in the middle of Galilee. He's surrounded by this suffering. And yet he's in a bubble. He lives in his ivory tower. He lives... In a sanitized existence. He never goes down to the people. In fact, he hears about Jesus healing them. And he doesn't care that Jesus is out there healing his subjects. What he is afraid is that John the Baptist has come back from the dead. He's going to have to kill him again. That's all the man cares about. The man doesn't care about the needs of the people who are there. He just kind of skates on top of them. My question, brothers and sisters, is where do we fit Are we more like Herod in his sanitized world? Or are we more like Jesus down in the trenches, down at the bottom of the falls, dealing with the broken bodies and the broken lives? Well, sort of traditionally, in one of the first Sundays of the year, I kind of like to set our trajectory for the year. And what has been on my heart is apostling. We've... Had a, a a time where it wasn't possible, where we had to stop because of vaccinations, because of COVID, because of of violence in Haiti. But this year, I think that we need to we need to pick it back up again. This year, I think we need to push and to drive. And we need to consider the fact that there are people who are suffering right now in the world, brothers and sisters, who are suffering just as the people in Jesus' day suffered. And I want to know, do we care about them at all? Are they important to us? We are surrounded by people who are going to go to hell. Now I realize we cannot save them. Only God can change the heart. But he has ordained us and given it to us to go out and tell people about the good news of the kingdom of God. Do we not care of all the suffering that is going to occur to people when they leave this world? Do we not care about their physical suffering both here in this world and in the world that surrounds us? so therefore, brothers and sisters, what I'm hoping that we will do this year is once again pick up our apostling. But this time I pray that it is a desanitized. You see, we can't just say an unsanitized because we've already sanitized it in our minds. People don't suffer because they're not in front of us. If we could see the suffering is out there, then we would do something about it. And that's what I'm calling this church to do. And this year, some way, I can't tell you exactly how we're going to do it, because everywhere we turn, there's a roadblock. But that is our focus, not just to 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 proclaim the good news of the gospel. I want to do it locally here, as we always have, but also to preach a desanitized apostle. Let's pray. Lord, I know that um, as a church and as people, we've, been up some uh, up against some difficulties uh, restrictions on travel um, real danger of of illness and death Um, these things have have sort of clouded what you have left us to do which is to reach out into this world with your compassion and with your gospel and i pray that you will open the doors both individually for the people who are here and corporately for us as a church, that we can turn our attention this year to a desanitized kind of apostling. In Christ's name we pray, amen.